folks, and welcome to another edition of Variable Deposit Ensemble Projects, the podcast about musicians out there in the trenches of, the, of America, not necessarily from New York or L.A. And uh, we've got an amazing show for you today. So I'm going to make, and it's a longer show, so I'm going to make this kind of quick. I uh, want to give a quick shout out to the uh, companies that I support and that support me. Um, Wedge Mouthpieces, designed by Dave Harrison up in British Columbia, Canada. Uh, I play strictly wedge mouthpieces. That's all I do from bass trumpet all the way up to piccolo. Custom design by Dave Harrison. If you want to know more about wedge mouthpieces, go to wedgemouthpiece.com. These are amazing. And no matter what you may think about different sorts of trumpet mouthpieces or brass mouthpieces, you owe it yourself to try one of these things. Okay, the other thing that I uh, play, other instruments that I play, are gets and trumpets. I play exclusively gets and trumpets from bass trumpet up to piccolo. And these are amazing instruments, and you get the most bang for your buck uh, with Getzens. I mean, uh, for the quality uh, of professional quality instruments, uh, these are uh, very well balanced uh, against the, the prices. And they're all made right in Elkhorn, Wisconsin. Purely American-made stuff. So go to Getzen.com to find out more about Getzen Trumpets or just talk to your local music dealer. All right, that's it for the uh, credits, if you will. I want to get right to the show today. Uh, This is an extensive interview, so it's a longer show uh, with a composer, arranger, jingle producer, alto saxophone player, band leader, contractor, Roy Vonbrek. Roy has been in the business in Chicago for many decades and has a lot of history and an incredible story to share with you. If you're a younger musician looking to learn about what it's like to adapt and survive in the music business, gotta, you got to listen to the show today. This is really, really good stuff. So I want to give you a little bit of an idea about what Roy's composition is like. So, Roy leads a band called the Jazz Consortium Big Band, and we're going to play their CD today. The CD was recorded live in studio. They went into Chicago Recording Company studio, the whole band, and just read the thing down. So, it's a real tribute to the reading abilities of this fine band. So, the Jazz Consortium Big Band. Uh, This is a composition by Roy called Out to Lunch. He composed and arranged this. So this will give you a real flavor for the kind of uh, skills that uh, this man has to share. So before we do anything else, let's listen to Out to Lunch, composed and arranged by Roy Vonbeck, performed by the Jazz Consortium Big Band.
I'm on. I'm on the uh, online here talking to the band leader, composer, saxophone player, all around musician, and jingle producer. Uh, you name it. Uh, uh, Roy Vonbeck. Roy, how you doing this morning? Great, Nick. How are you? I can't complain. So I played last last night, and I'm still kind of coming out of that. <laughs> well, I'm recovering from my birthday last night. So. Yeah, that's right. Congratulations on another trip around the sun. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's a boomer remark if I ever heard one. As a boomer. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Right. Yeah, I have a lot of questions I like to ask people. I kind of want to get started with it. You know, just so you know, we've talked about this before on gigs. Um, one of the purposes of this little show is to not just, uh, you know, give voice to musicians who are not necessarily from L.A. or New York, but also to educate people. There's a lot of people who listen to this show are younger musicians or newer musicians, I should say, who are trying to figure a way out of how they're going to survive uh, in this climate. And I think having uh, a perspective from all kinds of people you know, uh, that can be historical. Yeah, we're baby boomers here, but uh, I think there's a, the understanding some of the history 
gives you a handle on what you know, what you can possibly think about for thinking outside the box for playing in the 21st century. So, sure. right, how did you decide to make music your life's work? I mean, how did you know this was something you wanted to do? Well, I started out actually uh, in high school. I thought I was going to be a journalist. I really liked writing, and I really uh, liked, I was on the school newspapers, and I really liked being involved with that, and I was also into photography, so I was taking photos for the paper, and uh, also for the school yearbook, and uh, I thought that would be my focus, and in the course of the meantime, like me, not only just musicians, but just, you know, kids in general, I was also in the high school band, and in the, the jazz band, that back then we called it the stage band, yeah. And it was just the music part of it initially was just, oh, well, my friends are in band. I want to be in band, too. That was kind of how it got started. And um, but the more I got involved with music, you know, play it in band. Uh, it, I just I found I, first of all, I was good at it. And secondly, I liked it. And yeah. um, so by the time uh, I got into college, um I was thinking, you know, I might be changing my mind here a little bit, and I, I may be getting into music as, you know, a future profession. I'd started writing music, um, actually, back. Uh, this is when I was, uh, you know, becoming coming of age, I guess you could say. Yeah. You know, bands like uh, there were a lot of bands were like the like Blood, Sweat and Tears, Chicago, um, the Electric Flag. They were, you know, coming out with horns in their rock band sound and being a saxophonist and of course like most teenagers you know loving to listen to the radio and that i uh just um was taking an interest in that kind of music and i got involved in a couple of bands that wanted to play music like that but of course you know it's like they didn't have any charts or anything like that so i it was my job to sort of sit down and listen to the in record literally and you know figure out what the horn parts were doing and the more i did that and uh, one thing kind of led to another and i started writing music for the high school jazz band and uh it kind of that kind of crept in there sort of uh, it is kind of a you know it's already something you do and don't really think too much about it, and you realize gosh i'm doing this and then yeah, uh, yeah. i was i was i really i found i frankly i like writing uh, as much if not more than playing so that's kind of how it all kind of got started. Although at the time I thought when I was decided I was going to be focused on music, I thought I was going to be more as a band director. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have any, I mean, I wasn't like going to had no uh, notions of becoming like the next Charlie Parker or the next Kenny G or whatever, like that, as far as a performer. And so, um, I really, you know, felt like, uh, well, you know, uh, my high school band director was a very uh, uh, engaging person and very inspirational. And so I thought, well, you know, I could be a band director. So that's what I thought I was going to do. Well, a couple of questions then um, uh, for our listeners from the around the Midwest. Uh, where did you go to high school? What high school was this? Uh, Conan High School in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Okay. And uh, you mentioned college. Uh, I think it's relevant to know where you went to college. Sure. Well, I, I went to uh, Harper College in Palatine. It's a community college, a junior college, I guess some people call it. Uh, and I got my uh, my two-year degree in music, uh, you know, called associate arts and music degree. And then I went uh, uh, to northern Illinois uh -huh. uh, in, in DeKalb um, like, uh, for a year. 
And then, um, then it, it gets kind of wacky after this because um, it's a, it's sort of a funny story in a way. But quickly, at the time, uh, the girl who I was going steady with, we wanted to get engaged. Well, my uh, future father-in-law said he was very disappointed in my choice of profession. He, he felt like <laughs> being a musician, especially. By that time, by the by, the time I was you know really into my college career, I really decided rather than being a band director, I liked writing music more than anything else, and I didn't like the I didn't like the regimentation and the uh, and the structure of the educational part of being a band director and in the you know music education situation. So I was focusing, uh, changed my major to a music composition major. And he didn't. He didn't feel that was going to be a, uh, a useful or a, a profitable move, and he didn't see a, a future in that. So he told me that if I didn't get like uh, make progress and make a move toward getting a real job, he was going to um, uh, break off our engagement. Wow. Like that. And uh, so that that kind of shook me up because I'd been dating this girl since high school. Uh -huh. And uh, so I just so I uh, quit college after my junior year and I'd only ever been doing music as a, uh, you know, uh, not only just a hobby, but also a vocation. I've been playing in rock bands uh, since late in high school and making money doing it in, in bands. And uh, and I'd never had like a quote unquote day, the traditional high school day job, you know, working at a store or something. So yeah. I, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I just started looking around and, you know, looking to get hired to do anything, frankly. And I thought, well, I mean, and, you know, I've had my music background. So, I mean, I did, I would, I worked in the record department of a, of a, uh, actually a Polk Brothers at, at, for a while. Yeah. I was, I was a part-time disc jockey for a while. I taught, um, uh, guitar because I always had played guitar for fun. I taught guitar and saxophone privately for a while. Uh, I even worked for a, a company uh, that uh, it was a vending machine company, and I would uh, the job was I would go there um, and uh, they'd lock me in a vault with these two other ladies, and these the, the vending machine trucks would come and dump their money through this big chute from their making their rounds of the vending machines and oh the, my gosh <laughs> and and this money would come you know these bags of money literally would, would come out out of the chute into this into our area which was locked and sealed because there were like thousands of dollars yeah. and um, I, I did that for one day and you know you don't realize <laughs> they say how dirty paper money is well. They really mean it because I would I back then everything you had to count everything by hand. They don't have automatic bill counters. Yeah. So by by the first I went home that night from the from this job. Which by the way, if you wanted to go to the bathroom, you had to call this number and then they would come and unlock the vault for you. That's how, <laughs> that's that's how crazy the job was. But I went home after the first day. Woke up the next morning. My face and hands were so swollen from the dirt and stuff from the from the paper money I handled that uh, I called in sick the second day. And then I, that night I said, you know what? This job is not for me. So I, I, <laughs> yeah, the, third, the third morning I called in, I said, and I quit. Yeah. 
Can't say that I blame you. Um, this was, it's fascinating hearing hearing about all this backstory from from you, Roy. I, I remember you from all the work you did with the you know the writing and everything. Mm-hmm. How did you how did you start working? How did your career begin, particularly in composition? Well, I was. Uh... I'd always been writing music, as I said, in school, and I'd be for, you know, you take music composition courses and music theory courses and things like that as part of being a music major. And so I'd recorded some of my big band charts that I'd written, but I'd also recorded some of the little uh, classical pieces. I'd written some things for Woodwind Trio and Woodwind Quartet and um, a couple things of that nature. So I had those on tape um, and I thought, you know, it was a sample just for my for my own purposes, my own you know learning and listening purposes and enjoyment. And um, so I really looked at some of these day jobs I was trying to find my way through. And I said, you know, none of this really it seems like it's going to be a big time, uh, you know, career for me. And uh, of course, I didn't have uh, a, a uh, education degree yet because I had you know, quit in my junior year. So yeah. um, uh, I, I had heard of these companies that wrote music for commercials. And I, I, I was, you know, it fascinated me a little bit that, you know, you could write music and get paid for it. Uh, I didn't know too much about it, frankly, as far as, you know, the, all the uh, ins and outs. So I just, I got a list. I'm, I'm kind of making a long story short here, but oh, I got a list of, of the places in Chicago that did that sort of thing. And back then there were maybe uh, you know, eight or nine companies that did that sort of work in varying degrees. Now at that time, I didn't know who was like the, you know, the A company and who was like just pretty much, you know, a bargain basement sort of thing that would do, you know, uh-huh. uh, music for like, you know, uh, car dealers or something like that. I just knew I wanted to try and find a job. So I started calling, phone calling all these uh, places and trying to set up interviews with my uh, collection of uh, reel-to-reel tapes uh, of wow. that, uh, big band charts and, and you know, like I said, uh, you know, some you know, woodwind groups and that sort of thing. And, you know, I, I do want to mention at this time, you know, for our younger listeners, yeah. that this is before the advent of the Internet when, you know, you could look up a subject at the touch of a button. Yeah. All, yeah. all this stuff was pretty much, you know, one of those uh, under kind of under the radar kind of businesses. Now, I don't mean under in terms of legality. Of course, it was, it was actually it was all union, music union stuff. Uh, but they were, um, it was a sort of thing where you couldn't just, you know, drive, you know, do, uh, send emails out to people and request interviews or, 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 or email sound files. They had to physically go around and, uh, and drop these things off. And uh, I wound wow. up hired on a temporary basis, on a two-week trial basis, at this one company, it was a company called Comtrack. Yeah, and yeah. The first, the first two weeks I was there, all I did was do lead sheet transcriptions of songs that they were uh, in, involved with. Uh, they also had a, a music publishing and music producing uh, uh, side, uh, like subsidiary, I guess you could say. And so I would sit there at my table or my desk, I had own little desk with a with a reel to reel tape recorder, and I would listen to these songs. And write them down, and you know, uh, and they, and then write in the, you know, the chords and that for copyright purposes. So wow. then after two weeks, um, I went to 
my boss, who many people, some of the older people listening uh, might remember, Dick Reynolds. Oh yeah, it was a musical, uh, you know, side of the of the company. And I said, uh, "Well, uh, what do you think? Do I have the job?" And he said, "Oh, oh yeah, sure." <laughs> so, and little did I know, I, like I said, when I got into this thing, I didn't know. I had no idea who these clientele. Uh, who the clientele was of these different companies. I just didn't know they did music for commercials. I didn't know who did what. Well, I found out, first of all, I had, I had come and approached this con- company contract just as they, as they had fired somebody. So they had an opening. And it wasn't a very big company to begin with, but I found out they were doing these national accounts, like you had Sears, uh, you know, uh, Budweiser, uh, oh God, I mean, uh, McDonald's, uh, you know, you you name the you name the big advertisers of the day, and that's what they were doing music for. And I'm, I was like, going, holy mackerel! What is? You know, I, <laughs> I mean, I was awestruck. I was because I, I what happened? I was initially I would just kind of go to their recording sessions as when I first started out and listen to the you know recording session, and then go home, and then like a week or two later, that same music would be on TV or on the radio, and I'm going, yeah. oh my god, this is unbelievable. Yeah, so that's, that's how, cool. That's how my career, my music, my professional music career got started. That's that's just amazing to hear that. Um, do those uh, do those companies still exist? Um, the the ones that uh, were in business when I started don't exist anymore per se. They but the other guy, you know, you know, people like me who started out on staff. Uh-huh. For some of these companies, they went went off and found, uh, you know opened their own companies on their own eventually, and so they're you know there's there there's there's still music commercial music being written, yeah. but not not to the not nearly to the extent in Chicago in the Chicago area and the Chicago you know uh, business market or whatever yeah. that um, that it, it used to be. It, it, it's interesting hearing you tell me about uh, your methods of going out and shopping demos and knocking on doors and making phone calls. I mean, back in the day, they called that guerrilla marketing. And, <laughs> and, and Well, seriously, I mean, I read books about this when I was trying to get started. And we did an awful lot of the same stuff. I'm absolutely fascinated to hear you tell me about this. That's, that's really amazing. Um, do you still write jingles? Are you still in that business? No, I've, um, I haven't done any jingle work in a while. I was... My my jingle career itself, I I worked for several uh, companies as an on staff arranger, and then I also uh, had a couple different uh, periods of time where I had my actual own company. Yeah. Um. So uh, I would just uh, you know that's that's how I was um, you know as far as you know regular stuff. Then for a while there, I was doing um, freelance. Um, things where people would call me up and say, Roy, you know, we need a, a big band chart uh, for, you know, Wrigley's uh, gum, you know, or, you know, we need so- something where they needed uh, live instruments, you know, or real quote unquote instruments, because what had happened is over the years, the, the industry sort of evolved from using, you know, live players exclusively yeah. to more and more being, you know, uh, you know c- sequenced and computer driven and uh, there are fewer and fewer live musicians being used. And uh, I was never a, a great keyboard player. I wasn't one of these guys who was like fascinated by the world of synthesizers and the you know the world of sequencing and all that. 
I'm, I, I got into it, you know, as a career necessity, but a lot of these places started springing up that were just based like a one or two man operation where there was one guy who sequenced everything and then they would either in to go to like a, a professional, you know, big studio like uh, one of the, you know, Chicago recording company or Universal Recording, and then they'd overdub some instruments, some live instruments, um, and or they would, let's say, they get like in my case, they'd get an account or they get a, a client who wanted something like you know a strings uh, and uh, you know like a orchestra kind of sound or whatever, and then that's what they would call me as a freelance writer, and then in the meantime. While all this was going on, I was also uh, playing in a, a couple um, live music situations. Uh, starting out, I did. I started out leading a group uh, for Rich Melman, the uh, you know Chicago restaurateur, and, uh, and I, I, he hired me to put together a, a, a in-house uh, a, a club orchestra called they call it Rupert's Thirty Three Club. And so I did that for a few years you know, while I was doing the, the jingle thing. Um, and I could see kind of the future. Uh, the jingle thing just didn't, was starting to wind down in Chicago. So I started feeling like, you know, I'm afraid it's the, the future for me anyway was going to be uh, in, in uh, you know, live performance because New York and LA and Nashville, those are the big hubs of commercial music production and we used to be chicago but yeah. uh you know the other major ad agencies and frankly the the music heavy hitters in other areas in you know in uh in re in records and and film and broadway and stuff were close so more and more uh clients were going to either coast or to nashville in this case you know nashville is a right uh you know it's that's a Kentucky or Tennessee and they're right to work state. So there's no union restrictions if you don't want to. Uh -huh. And um, Chicago just really uh, lost its luster as being a, a, a strong commercial music production uh, area. So uh, and I was eventually uh, I, I played in uh, in the Rupert Surfy Club Orchestra. And then I uh, uh Played with another couple groups as just a sideman, and then I eventually formed my own wedding band, for lack of a better you know, generic term. Sure. And I did that for about uh, twenty some years. Wow. Yeah. Well, fascinating history here. I definitely want to pick up on that uh, again in a few minutes. Uh, but you lead the jazz consortium big band, and you've been writing for it, and you've had other people write for it. And we heard uh, uh, Out to Lunch up front uh, at the beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the next tune on the CD that we've got, your CD is called uh, Some Favorite Things. Uh, the next tune on the CD is something called Going West. Uh, why don't you tell us a little about it and set the tune up for us? Well, it's actually a tune that was written and arranged by uh, our lead trombonist at the time, a guy named Jeff Oslins. And um, it was something he came up with. He was a, a member. I, I went to high school with him, and uh, he was playing in the jazz consortium or consortium, being can say it either way. <laughs> and uh, he brought the, the chart in, and it sounded good. So, uh, you know, so we decided to add it to our repertoire. And uh, just it's a nice-sounding tune. And, uh opportunity for solos and that and um, so away we went with it all right folks let's give a listen to going west by jeff oslins mm -hmm. 
Mentioned Rupert's thirty-three. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, that is that where the uh, origins of the band Orchestra Thirty-Three was. Yes, uh, they uh, uh, the, the the group was put together as I mentioned earlier by um, well the, the concept of, it was a concept of a combination nightclub and a, a adjacent restaurant, uh, and the idea was to feature a, a house band with with singers. Uh, with a rotating group of singers and playing all sorts of music. And um, I was hired partly 
not only as a as to be the musical director or band leader or whatever you wanted to call me, but also because I could write music arrangements. And um, uh, so we, so that's was our thrust. And we would do, you know, some you know older tunes, but modern tunes to a, a nice mixture. And then I did that for three years, and then I um, I resigned because it was it was uh, in the nighttime playing uh, five nights a week, uh, although wow. it was, uh, the money was very good. It was, it, it was, I was trying to, of course, in the meantime, also do jingles during the day. And so it was kind of burning the candle at both ends. And uh, the, uh, I just finally said I needed to step away from the, the live scene. And so the club carried on for another couple of years. And then when it closed, the people in, remaining in the band in that, at that time, they went off and formed a jobbing or, or live music gigging whatever you want to call it group uh and they called it the orchestra 33 yeah because uh, they couldn't use rupert's 33 club name because uh, yeah. uh, that was trademarked for uh you know let us entertain you which is rich melman's company ah, and, okay. see that's that's where the, that that's that's the connection there um and so uh they started uh you know a lot of those lot of, they used a lot of my arrangements and uh uh, and and some of their own, and uh, and they started playing, uh, you know, live events, uh, you know, uh, weddings, corporate functions. Yes, and so that's that's their the that's how they got started. They they were like a sort of this uh, offshoot, uh, although offshoot cries isn't the right word, but they were the group that was there at the time, and they just took the took it out of the club nightclub and into the social mar- music market scene. So after that three years that you were there. Did the uh, did the uh, uh, Rich Melman, did the Lettuce Entertaining Enterprises keep that Rupert's 33 mode of operation going for a while? Well, they um, – let's see. They – things – you know, like like a lot of things in the entertainment business, you know, they, they have a – there's a certain amount of shelf life to some of these uh-huh. enterprises – and once the novelty wore off a little bit, you know, the, the, the scene makers and the so-called, you know, taste makers kind of were moving on to the what's the next big exciting thing. And so the crowd started to t- taper off a little bit. Uh-huh. And so um, uh, they decided, Let Us Entertain decided to sell it to a different company and, and they took over running it. And it it just kind of went it just went downhill in terms of the the management, you know, which is something that we as musicians don't obviously have a lot of control over. The management kind of saw things a little differently, how to run the club and and the, the feel and the vibe of the club, and it kind of to, this is just my own personal opinion. Uh, yeah. Kind of lost its luster in terms of the average you know uh, uh, nightlife goer in that, and so it's. One thing kind of led to another, and they, they, the, the, the writing was on the wall. They, they, they cut the nights from five nights to three nights, and then it was like, I don't know if, I don't know if, if everyone went to two nights, and um, it just wasn't because the group it was a large group. It was a, uh, what was it th- three, six, uh, it was like a 10 piece band plus, you know, a rotating group of about eight singers. A large, you know, there's a large payroll there. Aside from the fact that they had, you know, their own costs of uh, with rent and, uh, you know, all the other stuff and their payroll involved in that. So it's it's, you know, it's an expensive enterprise and you got to really, you know, 
be uh, you know popular and, and bringing in the people to to sustain it. And so therefore, uh, it just you know kind of they, the the final owner of the thing just decided to fold it. Yeah, boy, I remember when it was first starting. Though that was a hot item. That you, know, you guys were just killing it out there. Uh, quite, quite a, quite an amazing thing. Roy, you lead a band called the Jazz Consortium Big Band. I mentioned that up front, and uh, we just heard uh, uh, the Going West chart. Tell us a little bit about the Jazz Consortium Big Band. What's that all about? Well, that's it. Started out as a group of us who just uh, graduated college. Uh, I, I had just left. You know, Northern, as I mentioned earlier, and several uh, several people, friends of mine who had gone to the U of I, University of Illinois, and there were some people from Northwestern, and there were like you know maybe one or two from other different schools. We all decided, hey, let's get together and and play the big band music that we played in college that we you know, really enjoyed, and see if we can find a place to play for fun. And um, there was a place called uh, uh, Dirty Nellies, which is not the present day Dirty Nellies. It was a different place, a much yeah. smaller place, but still in uh, down sort of down the tracks a little bit in Palatine, Bothwell Street. Uh, yeah, and I wasn't uh, really the quote unquote leader. I was just friendly with the people who actually put the first put the group together, and um, uh, uh, and they uh, they kind of tasked me with bringing in some more horn players because the, the the core of the group was a rhythm section that was doing a jazz like quintet thing at the U of I. I if I, if I, I'm trying to remember, I've got this story exactly right, but I think that's how it worked out. So I kind of brought in the horn players and we had charts that, that they had gotten, uh, uh, sort of surreptitiously from the library, <laughs> uh, yeah, from the U of I band. I, I photocopied uh, some charts I got from uh, playing at, at when I was at Harper College uh, at the at, with their band, and so we started playing at Dirty Nellies because the the it was an eclectic kind of place, and the owners liked the idea of featuring big band music, um, and they didn't have to pay us. We just you know we would make whatever we made charging at the door yeah. and so it was a combination of of you know friends who are musical people and then over time uh people came and went and uh, i kind of evolved into me you know running the band and um many more people wound up coming from northern partly because i had been there and so i knew uh, northern had a very strong jazz program and so i knew uh, uh, some of the people there and they would bring in some of their friends and so that uh that's how that started and we did that for about uh you know five or six years or so um and then uh to make a long story short again, uh, everyone wound up going their own way. Um, you know, everyone was at that point was we, we were out of school. We were looking to, you know, bec you know, become professionals and whether as a musician or educator, you know, we want to start families. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. the uh, then we go about 11 years ago, uh, we kind of got back together. My wife, uh, Jennifer Silk, who's a violinist, a professional violinist and plays a lot of like dinners and uh, cocktail receptions, as well as weddings and other things, bumped into Mike Myers, one of uh, the old bass play, bass trombone players in the group. Uh, from this, this is we're talking from the seventies. That was when that was when we first got started, like in nineteen seventy-five. Wow. And and one, she started up a conversation with him, because. Um, 
And so, uh, by the way, this is not not the same not the same wife who uh, I, I'm a, whose whose father made me uh, quit school. This is a, <laughs> um, uh, I wound up getting divorced, and so I, I remarried. And so uh, they uh, he Mike said to my wife Jennifer, "Oh, tell Roy I said hello." And so we kind of started percolating things. And thanks to Facebook and the internet and that, we were able to kind of reconnect with a lot of, of the original players. And uh, we decided to get back together and see what happened. And in the meantime, I, you know, we played a couple uh, country club uh, concerts, open air concerts. And I subsequently went to the new Dirty Nellies management, and I showed them the clippings from that I saved, because I'm a big clippings person. I, I have a big uh-huh. full of clippings and all sorts of stuff and photos and that from our uh, first 10-year Dirty Nellies. And so they were uh, convinced that it might be a possibility to do it again and, and at the new Dirty Nellies, which was a much bigger, much more upscale kind of place. And so they decided to give it a try, and we've been doing it at Dirty Nellies now for nine years. It's weird to think of it being nine years because it doesn't seem that long. It seemed like yesterday. Let me kind of interject here for folks. I first got to know Roy when I subbed once in a while at the old Dirty Nellies on Bothwell Street. In fact, I have the dubious honor of having been dubbed uh, Nick Dropped Off, I think it was. Because <laughs> I, uh, I, I was one night and was playing I th- I, I, I'll never forget the tune it's what are you doing the rest of your life the Ma- Michelle Legrand thing mm-hmm. and I went and hit that I, went up, I apologize for putting you under so much stress <laughs> I was just not feeling well I'd driven 300 miles where jumped out of the car and went and played and locked my knees I held that high E and woke up in the trombone section. (laughs) I remember John Blaine just ducking and running. Oh, there he comes. (laughs) But uh, in any case, I I still had some great experiences with the band back then. And I was just so thrilled because I was a sub. And I didn't go to Northern until much later. I actually did my post-grad study in uh, education out at Northern. Um, And so there is a loose connection. But... uh, the other way, I got to tell you, I was so grateful when you called me to uh, <clears throat> be part of the uh, uh, redeveloped band, and it's just been a wonderful experience get to getting to be in with that trumpet section. That's the the four horsemen, I think, in the back yes. row with well, Dave Frolicine on lead, uh, Dave Katz on, on all the jazz. I'm in there, you know, kind of slamming away, and Greg Tips uh, doing arrangements and things. And therein lies my little uh, not too subtle uh, segue. Boy, the next chart on the um, CD is a little thing called Grape Jelly. Uh, why don't you tell us about that and introduce the tune? Well, uh, like many of the tunes we do, um, uh, Greg brought it in one day and said, we'd like to, you know, he'd like to, you know, bring the, have us do this chart. And I'm always encouraging people in the band to write things and bring it in. Because we, we do not only published things by well-known bands, uh, and well-known arrangers, but also people in the group. And um, he had written this uh, this chart. And uh, by the way, when I say chart, for people listening, we, I mean a music arrangement. I mean like a like a chart, like a graph, or anything like that. But that's that's you know, that's band lingo. Um, uh, so so we played it. It's, it went over great. And when it came time to record, we we definitely put that in there. So uh, away we went. All right, folks, let's listen to Grape Jelly uh, by Greg Tips. (laughs) 
Where did you record uh, the CD? What, what, it, it, sound, it was obviously done in the studio, I believe, right? Uh, where did you do the recording? Uh, we did the recording at Chicago Recording Company, which is oh wow, the premier recording studio in, in Chicago. It, it still ex- exists, um, and that's where I did a lot of my jingles, uh, uh, jingles, commercial music. Uh, you know, that's another you know kind of you know, jargon kind of. Uh, uh, term, but uh, yeah, I and what had happened was they um, uh, it was a situation. Obviously, I as I worked there a lot, you know, I knew the people really well, and they were breaking a new studio in. Uh, you know, um, you know, recording studios. People think of oh, recording studio. Well, most recording studios that are large have more than one room within yeah. the flex. So they were opening a new room, and um, they they. Uh, wanted to, you know, dry run it before they put, you know, paying customers in there, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, artists, uh, you know, and people like, uh, uh, 
you know, you know, commercial music and that. So, uh, so I worked a deal with that where I would uh, bring the band in, and we would record, you know, like on a Sunday. I don't know if it was a Sunday or a Saturday during the day, um, and we recorded this music. And in exchange, they got to, you know, iron out the bugs because just like anything else that's brand new, there's always little things that you got to fix and adjust or that don't work right. And so, there was, it was an all day kind of thing. Because, uh, you know, that we'd stop and they'd have to, you know, check something, you know, oh, we got to fix this, we got to do this. So there'd be a little bit of downtime. You know, frankly, the performance wise, pretty much we, we, we nailed the performances pretty much right off the bat. The main reason why the, the, the session dragged on is because they were, you know, adjusting things and yeah, making, yeah. You know, and then uh, and so therefore, you know, we got to record in this you know fantastic studio with really nice people. This people at Chicago Recording Company, nicest group of people, you know, staff wise, and uh, and yeah, so there we go. Yeah, that the the sessions that I played at CRC, whenever I walked in there, I just said, you know, to the listeners. If you see uh, pictures or videos of, you know, incredible recording studios with big name acts doing uh, just amazing stuff, that's what CRC is. You walk into this huge space uh, with, you know, microphones and cables and, and booths. It's just, you feel like you're in musician heaven. It is really cool. And uh, the fact you got to work there so much, Roy, that's, that's got to be a pretty neat experience. Um, I got to ask a question. Now, I've, uh, I've interviewed several uh, big bands leaders right one of the things i think would be of serious interest to our listeners who are also developing things now because a lot of the uh, younger musicians are developing big bands too how did you finance this recording i mean that's a big project in crc you know, that's an expensive studio how'd you pull that all off well truthfully because i recorded so many jingle sessions there you know obviously they're there for you know real money uh for you know for real clients um, uh, it was, and because we were, as, we were as much doing a favor for Chicago Recording Company as they were for us, because we were helping them uh, get rid of bugs and stuff that would have cropped up on a, on a ah, okay. session. So, so it was, it was uh, I didn't have to pay for any studio time. That's a at CRC. Oh my. Gosh, that's just incredible. Now, now, I, think, I think the only thing I, ha I did have to pay for, I'm, I'm trying to remember now, is, uh, you know, the, the, the physical stuff like, you know, battery, well, the recording tape, for instance, you know, yeah, anything, yeah. anything that's uh, any materials in that, uh, you know, I would uh, I think I, I paid for that myself. But the yeah. studio time itself was was gratis. That's amazing. That's a, yeah. The, the recording tape back then with those great big, you know, was it two inch, three inch? Uh, yeah, two, uh, two inch, two, 24 track. You know, uh, Amp Ampex, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back in the day, Ampex. Now, the people don't even know what that stuff is anymore. Oh, that's uh, true. true. Yeah. Now, did you have the whole band in there live, or did you bring yes. them? Oh. Yes, we did the whole band live, and um, uh, the only thing we overdubbed uh, was um, the solos. The so solos we did, you know, we just played the chart, and we, you know, we just not have the solos play live, and then we overdubbed them on, uh, you know, on. At the same same time, you know, I mean, the, the band would take a break and we'd go and we'd record the solos. A bunch of solos, in. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. amazing stuff. It's you know, it's just great stories. Roy, the next tune on the CD is another arrangement of yours, um, uh, "My Favorite Things." Tell us a little bit about "My Favorite Things." Well, um, 
I just um, I did a commercial <laughs> for uh, actually it's industrial uh, film music uh, for Keebler cookies, and they they used the uh, my favorite theme my favorite things theme song and put their own lyrics to it. It was like a sales uh, media. Presentation for a sales meeting, and you know they uh, uh, and, and they put their own lyrics about you know this year we're going to sell more cookies and it's going to be great you know that sort of thing that rah rah kind of motivate the the the, the workforce thing, and I really liked and I did the arrangement for it in a, a very scaled down way. Uh, for this presentation, I said, "Boy, I really like the way that came out. I think I'm going to expand that to a a, a full blown, you know, big band chart where uh, you, you know, there's solos and there's different sections and there's contrasting stuff, and um, that's really how it came out." Okay, cool. Let's listen to the arrangement of my favorite things arranged by uh, Roy Vonberg. <laughs>
Okay, uh, there's some interesting challenges I see with big bands around uh, the area. Um, they tend to be kind of, how should we put this, okay, monochromatic in a lot of ways. Um, and I don't mean musically. I'm talking about personnel. And um, uh, I, I have seen uh, women start to make more of a, uh, uh, inroads into the uh, jazz scene around Chicago. Um uh, I've seen, you know, we have Debbie Katz playing in, in your band. Uh, uh, the, some of the other bands I talked to have quite a few women in their bands. Um, don't see a whole lot of racial mix in the bands anymore. Can you? Do you have any thoughts or comments about uh, sexism, ageism, or even uh, issues of, of race with big bands and, and music these days? How, how do we? You know, have you worked with those things, ideas, specifically or inadvertently in any ways? Well, Nick, that's one of the things I've always had in, in the back of my mind. There's always been a, some sort of social component to my ways of thinking. I don't know if it's because yeah. I came of age in the late 60s and, and uh -huh. 70s when activism and a lot of different, uh, 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 you know, uh, things were were being, uh, you know, addressed, a lot of different issues. And um, the, uh, it's the, the hardest thing, I think, in general, I, I tried in, on my sessions, I tried to include women, and uh, I was probably you know, one of the first jingle play, players to include, or producers, I should say, to include women on the session besides the usual, you know, the, the flutist, you know, okay, there's a woman, you know, there's, uh -huh. you know, one of those kind of, you know, the, the, the stereotypic yeah. stuff. But in terms of like big band kind of players, in, or you know whether whether it be reeds or you know uh, brass instruments or I always tried to find a way to get people and especially younger people too you know women and uh, and you know uh, and you know black brown whatever uh, players inv involved in my sessions and also in the bands I played the hardest thing is we don't have a lot of intermingling. Yeah. And socially between white players, black players, women players, men players, and so much of this stuff, and I think I need to say this above and beyond everything else, so much of the music, I, it's not like most businesses or, or uh, I would say occupations or – it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah, yeah. There are many very talented players that don't – see the light of day as far as the public or as far as making a living uh, as performers because they're not at the, either at the right place at the right time or their or their attitude is well you know I'm a good player people will come and find me and, and it definitely does not work that way anyone yeah. who expects to be discovered uh, you know without putting some major work like like you did with your career and I did with my career you know Mark uh -huh yourself is is going to be disappointed as far as having music being other than the, either like a hobby or whatever uh -huh. and I think that and so therefore the idea of you know of uh, hanging out with other people in you know casual music settings that's the way most people like when, for instance you know when i put my the, the big band uh, or the uh, you know just the jazz consortium and you know i got people who i knew were good yeah, yeah. Happen to be mostly white guys because yeah. that's who most of my and you know it's it's unfortunate. So I try to keep an ear, oh, ears and eyes open for 
people to who are good players, and that's that's the the that's the bottom line. You yeah. have to be a good player, and and unfortunately, well, I'm sorry, unfortunately, uh, the challenge is especially in big band music, you have to be able to be a good reader as well yeah. as a decent improviser. As a matter of fact, probably it's more important to be a good reader because there's always going to be a couple people in, in a big band that are great soloists. So you yeah. don't have to be a major motion picture soloist uh, in a big band, but you do have to be a good reader. And that's a little harder to come by uh -huh. uh, with a lot of people. There's, uh, you know, there's there's the, what's the, there's the, out, the outskirts uh, big band that's an all women band. Uh, there's uh, there's a couple of black big bands that are uh, you know more on that I've read about, but like that's the I don't get to meet these people as much. Now there's a the more I think uh, getting away from big bands, there's more interaction as far as small group stuff. You know, jazz quartets, jazz. Yeah. That's, you know, people go to jam sessions or they hang out at the jazz showcase or Andy's or one of those kind of jazz clubs. And they get to hear and see and meet people that that are not only good players, but, you know, are people that you'd, hey, I, you'd like to hang with. And yeah, that's yeah. where that's how I, I think a young player gets going, trying to reach out to other areas of, of performance and and. Uh, and and be able and plus obviously having your stuff together, uh, you know, uh, gig uh, chops wise and and everything else. That that's how you're gonna get ahead in terms of making music as as a performer, you know, as opposed to like being like a, a band director or something like that. But even then, you need to have certain people that you know who you can yeah. be mentors or just friends or other or people you happen to know or like someone you know who knows someone who can you know, put a good word in for you and at least give open a door. Now, you know, whether you can walk, whether you walk through that door or trip on the door, uh, the, the doorway <laughs> is, is up to you. Yeah, I get that. All right, Roy, we got one more track on the CD. Uh, uh, this is a little thing called Ideas. Tell us about Ideas. Well, that that comes from the days when we were uh, just had gotten out of, uh, graduated from Northern Illinois, back in the 1970s we're talking about. Uh, and it was uh, composed and arranged by two guys who uh, were um, uh, playing, I don't think, I'm trying to think if they actually ever played in the band or not. So he said we had some people that would come to the band and bring charts in, friends of ours who, who were writers and not yeah. just players of the band. And uh, uh, the uh, uh, bass trombonist, John Todd, uh, Rex Richardson, um, and I think Rex uh, uh, subbed with the group, with the Jazz Consortium or Consortium. Um, so some, so they, uh, they collaborated on this piece. It's a lengthy piece. And uh, it goes through a lot of different moods, and there's a there's a free form part in the middle, and uh, they brought it in. We liked it, and so we put it in the our playlist. Cool. Let's listen to ideas by Rex Richardson and John Todd. Thank you. 
great. You've already given a, a lot of great advice. This is just you know tangentially throughout our conversation here. So one of the things I always like to kind of close with in our discussions is, you know, here's the premise of the, of the final question, if you will. Okay. Uh, we want to encourage newer musicians to pursue their dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my own son became a professional musician. Mm-hmm. And so this is something that I think is important. So how would you advise a newer musician, somebody who's listening from a conservatory or a college music program, how would you advise them to wisely uh, you know, begin the concept of developing a career in music in the 21st century? Well, I think it really helps to find the area that you're really interested in and right off the bat, you know, whether are you a jazz player, you're a classical player, or you know, are you, what what type of music, you know, uh, genre do you enjoy being involved with the most, you know, as maybe as a as a writer or uh, whatever, and start and then find where where are these where can I express or, or utilize, I should say, the, these these talents I have that you know that I'm that I'm good at, you know what area? And it's and I like I said before, it's uh, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And the cool thing about these days is you know there's so much more stuff at the uh, at the touch of a keyboard uh, in terms of finding things like you know back then when I started, you know the idea of you know, you couldn't just type in at a computer commercial music companies and then bingo, yeah. listen. And you know, now you can do that. The I would say you would need to find that area your interest you're, you want to focus on and be persistent. I used to say politely persistent. Yeah, contacting people and you know you you're gonna you know I mean I I talked to every at the time every music. Uh, company uh, head uh, in Chicago and got hired by one. There were eight and I got hired by one. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's, so there's, there's to make a living, you've got to be persistent and you've got to be able to be handle rejection. And, you know, as you and I both know for creative people, rejection can be hard to take. Oh, you know, because it's, it's like, it, it's like a, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's like, as if it's, it's, you take it personally because you're, you're displaying your creative in, inner workings, and people kind of it, it's you feel like they're being dissed when they don't hire you or they don't listen to your music or they don't whatever. So, as as I know, it sounds it sounds like a, a, a little bit of cop on. I'm trying to. Uh, I've, I've thought about this. I think about this a lot because, as you know, what the part of the jazz consortiums. Uh, the performances we have a high school band yeah. for us, and th- most of the players are really good. And I, I have some players, uh, some some other people, I should say, older people who say, "Oh, they're getting the music business. Why do they want to do that?" It's, you know, there there are a lot of naysayers in the music business that, frankly, you know, kind of try to throw you know splat, throw cold water on some people's efforts for whatever reason. And uh, you have to be like I went through like three different, three or four different phases in my music career, as as the industry changed. And you have to keep an open mind, and uh, and be willing to you know to d- adapt to things as they come along. 
and say, well, yeah, I wasn't counting on doing this, but let's see where this leads. Now, yeah. it's, it's hard to do that when you're trying to make a living doing it. So, uh, you know, you might have to say, well, you have a quote unquote, the famous day job while you while you, you know, tr- attempt to establish a, a performing career. Yeah, and, um, that's that's I, I think you know persistence and and you know it, it's really a, a people it's really a personality kind of uh, situation because unlike in an office where you could be put in a in a cubicle or at a workstation or whatever and if you're you know kind of kind of a cranky or or, or or hard to get along with personality, it's not so much because you know, you've got, you know, you're doing a little job in a little niche. But what we do, you know, we're communicating with people with music yeah. and with people who are going to be hiring us, whether band leaders, you know, music producers, whatever. And you have to try and, you know, be willing to work with people rather than say, this is my, you know, I'm going to play jazz and I'm not going to deviate from that. I'm going to play, or as a classical music, you're saying, I'm not going to play any modern music. I'm only going to play uh, the romantic favorites, yeah, okay, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard for, you know, because, you know, most, oh, most musicians, they study for years and they, it's like, well, what do I, what do I do? You know, how do I pick this out or the other thing? And you have to say, you know, music is a, there's a lot of things in music to, to do, not just directly performance related. Most people would prefer to perform, I think, most musicians. Yeah. So that's, that's really what I would say to, in terms of younger players, not to, yeah. not to, don't let, don't let, you know, you see some of these old timers who like the big bands, the big bands are gone. You're not going to be turned on the radio and hear, you know, a, a big band play on you know on the latest hit you know a radio station so that's that's a genre of music that's more for uh, you know a hobby or for because that's how i do this i don't make any money you know leading the jazz consortium to speak of Uh, but it's fun and i'm with friends and so it's art music yeah yeah it's you can you can play that kind of thing and you can also pursue you know, an area of music maybe that, uh, you know, is a little bit that's somewhat more of a moneymaker, maybe not quite what you originally planned on doing, but if you can find a, a somewhere in the niche of, of music, uh, the music industry, then, um, you know, you can, you can do stuff on the side and, uh, and hopefully one helps the other. Cool. Right before I let you go, uh, got to tell us uh, how do we find out more about the Jazz Consortium Big Band online website information? Do you have yes. there? Um, you have. Uh, you can go. Uh, uh, it's uh, our website. It's, it's jcbigband.com, um, and uh, you can also uh, go on. Um, we're on. You can Google us, and you'll find us. We're on YouTube. We're on Twitter. We're on. Um, oh gosh, uh, we have our own. Uh, uh, of course, uh, Facebook page and naturally our own website, and we even have our own uh, Pinterest page. So, oh wow! Um, and that's another thing too. I would definitely encourage people to do create a web presence. You know, yep. uh, a, a page you know that talks about yourself and what you do and has examples of of what you do. So, because nowadays people want to people who are interested in hiring or listening or looking, 
they want to be able to look up stuff, you know, in a at a moment's notice. And that would, and that's that's why I've done with Jazz Consortium. You know, would have a create a lot of different platforms in the social uh, media world, so people can find us and uh, and come hear us. And you know, we do get hired, as Nick, as you know, from time to time. We, we get from for large engagements uh, for you know, especially things that are more big band swing, quote unquote, oriented. Google Jazz Consortium Big Band. And you'll you'll see a bunch of stuff about us. Awesome, Roy, man, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. This is just going to be an amazing uh, sharing with our listeners. Thanks for being here today, Roy. Well, Nick, thank you for the invitation, and uh, I'm honored to be able to uh, to share this with you as well as with your listeners. Cool. See you next Sunday. It's a deal. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Roy. Well, once again, I'm so grateful to have Roy Weinbrick do this program with us today. I just thought it was an amazing story to hear. And just to, to hear the tales of adaptation and survival, I think is so important. And if you enjoy this show and it's your first time listening, please hit subscribe. Subscribe to the show. And if you're also an educator or a student, go back and listen to the archives. All the programs are like this. There's so much you can learn. Uh, from listening to these programs and picking up ideas about how to survive, how to think outside the box uh, for survival in the music industry in the 21st century. So once again, thanks to Roy Vonbrek, and thank you to the listeners for joining us in this program. This is your friendly neighborhood studio man, Nick Drozov, uh, representing the Variable D Possible Ensemble Projects. Thanks for listening, and until the next uh, program, don't stop the music. Music.